Shalom Mishpocha. Welcome to this new Kadima Cast podcast. I want to talk about biblical lifestyles and codes of conduct. Every business, every ministry uh, must have a statement of ethical guidelines uh, for leadership, rather in business or ministry. And of course, the guide for this for us is the Bible. Matter of fact, 99% of this is contained within Torah itself. But I want to go over a few core tenets of this and then get into some personal um, codes of conduct for males and females. So first of all, uh, leaders either in a ministry or a business have to be honest. They got to talk about honesty. Leaders strive to operate on the highest level of trust and integrity, which requires that we act honestly and fairly in our dealings with congregates, clients, and staff. Honesty is truthfulness. An honest person makes an accurate, trustworthy statements about life, self, others, and the kingdom of God. An honest person represents himself just as he is and tells others the truth about themselves. It is mandatory for a leader to be honest and to speak truth into all situations. Honesty will at times hurt people's feelings, bruising their spirit, but that does not mean that dishonesty is preferable. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who are working hard among you, those who are guiding you in the Lord, and confronting you in order to help you change. To confront is to come face-to-face with, especially with defiance or hostility, to bring face-to-face, to come up against, to encounter, and this is done by being honest with people. The maturing process as children of Adonai begins with a confrontation between your free will and the will of God confrontation is a natural part of being a child of Adonai. Confrontation brings about change. Confrontation unifies. Confrontation is a necessary skill we must grow accustomed to. Despite popular belief, the appropriate way to deal with problems you may have is to approach them directly, head on, and honestly. Honesty is a character quality. Honesty is a sign of the Ruach HaKodesh's work within you. Hebrews 6, starting at verse 17, Therefore, when God wanted to demonstrate still more convincingly the unchangeable character of his intentions to those who were to receive what he had promised, he added an oath to the promise, so that through two unchangeable things, in neither of which God could lie, we who have fled to take a firm hold on the hope set before us would be strongly encouraged. What's that telling us? God cannot lie. Therefore, his presence in you gives rise to honesty and truthfulness, Godly leaders are inherently honest. We strive to communicate with accuracy, honesty, and clearly. We must clearly communicate employee responsibilities. Your staff can't be held responsible or accountable for things not clearly communicated to them. We've got to provide a precise written responsibility sheet to them so that they know what their skill sets are that they should be using or should not be using. We have to define the limit of their authority. Adonai did to Micah. Micah was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah, a time when Judah was heavily involved with idolatry and apostasy. Judah and the priests were not in relationship with Adonai. They were just going through the rituals. They snidely asked in Micah 6, starting at verse 6, With what can I come before Adonai to bow down before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves in their first year? Would Adonai, verse 7, take delight in thousands of rams with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Could I give my firstborn to pay for my crimes, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? It was their way of asking, what does God want from us? And Adonai commented about them in Isaiah 29, verse 13. He said, because these people approach me with empty words, and the honor they bestow on me is mere lip service, 
while in fact they have distanced their hearts from me and their fear of me is just a mitzvah of human origin. Adonai's answer in Micah is profoundly simple and clear. He gave several points that contain no religion, no rhetoric, nor legalistic rituals. Micah 6 verse 8, it says, Human being, you've already been told what is good, what Adonai demands of you. No more than to act justly, love grace, and walk in purity with your God. Listen, as an employer with staff or with uh, customers or, you know, with congregates as a congregation leader, you must clearly communicate what you expect from them, to take care of them as well, to provide fair wages, medical, dental, etc. Staff employees need to be on board with your vision, your mission statement. I've had staff here in the past that had their own visions, vice what the congregations was, and we had to let them go. More than one vision, as I shared in Pascadema Talks, is die vision. So everybody has to be on board with where you're going and what you're doing, or in our case, you'll have a para-religious um, organization, not a combined unified congregation. Then there are employee responsibilities to employers. Most ministries or businesses expect employees to recognize the following responsibilities. You expect obedience, obeying the rules, the policies, the working hours, the work directions, the commands. It's a part of what it means to be an employee. To deal honestly with the employer, that means not lying or stealing from the employer and honestly uh, and honestly representing him or self or herself in an employment application. Working with reasonable care and skill. In other words, the employee gives full value of the time for which they're being paid. Not surfing the internet or social media or texting friends or family. Listen, we have to be good stewards. We have to maintain hours of business. We have to be here when people call or people stop by. And we have to be serving the Lord in all that we do. There's a responsibility to disclose any possible conflicts of interest. This can include work for a competitor or a relationship that could compromise the employer. Here at the Congregation Zion's sake, we use non-compete contracts, something to think about. We've had so many problems in the Messianic movement, and this is what I can speak to with knowledge, that congregations will bring on an associate rabbi, and for whatever reason, in three to four months, that person quits, goes a mile and a half down the road, puts their shingle out, starts a congregation, and divides a previous congregation right down the middle. And so there needs to be fairness. There needs to be justice. We need to take care of the employees, but the employees then need to be loyal and uh, and honor what codes are on at that place or your business um, or any other situation similar to it. There must be a maintaining the employer's property, the equipment, and facilities. And so there's a lot to this, but you've got to write it down. They can't do what they don't know they're supposed to be doing. And again, there needs to be a limit on the authority, what they can do, what they can sign for, and how far they can speak for the congregation. But this is all done through explicit communication and by writing it down. There needs to be confidentiality. Proverbs 11 verse 13 says, A gossip goes around revealing secrets, but a trustworthy person keeps a confidence. Leaders respect the integrity and protect the welfare of individuals, couples, as well as communities we serve. We're bound by law, I am as a Messianic rabbi, and so are ministry leaders, to maintain confidentiality in counseling, medical knowledge, and even general discussions. There can be no compromise in our duty and obligation to safeguard information entrusted to us. It's one of the hardest traits to maintain when you're being attacked and you know the truth. You have to be tight-lipped and you can't speak out on it because it would belie confidence and uh, things said to you in confidence, and that's a crime. But there's another warning here. Virginia, like many states, is a mandatory reporting state. So if someone shares with me any sexual misconduct or criminal activity 
or misconduct involving minors, which is underage children, I am bound by law to report it immediately within 24 hours, regardless if I believe it's true or not. And let me say that again, regardless if I believe it's true or not. The authorities will investigate. That's not our responsibility. This goes for everyone engaged at any level in ministry. All too often, clergy seek to find the truth, to bring the families together, to bring about restoration and healing. But in this case, you might just find yourself in jail. We've had several instances here in the last 10 years in Virginia where there were pastors who these things happened within the congregation, and rather than immediately report it to the authorities, they tried to take care of it themselves, and they got arrested. Wow. Next, equality. Leaders respect the inherent worth and dignity of all people and actively work to counter the forces of division that inflict divides and separation among individuals and communities. The foundations of division include, but are not limited to, anti-Semitism, bias, discrimination on the basis of race, gender, or age, socioeconomic uh, class, nationality, physical or mental ability, and any other characteristic of human diversity. All of us, all human beings, are created in the likeness of God. Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. We have equal dignity and equal seating at the communion table as children of our Heavenly Father through the blood of Yeshua. For this very reason, every human being deserves our respect and is the object of the love of God. The teachings of Yeshua make this crystal clear. The greatest commandment is to love and worship God, but the second greatest is you shall love your neighbor as yourself in Mark 12, 31. And who is my neighbor? It's anyone whom God brings into my life. Next, we must be good stewards. Leaders must be faithful stewards of the resources and finances over which we've been given responsibility and accountability. We conduct our fiscal affairs with appropriate biblical-based ethics and standards, recognize business and accounting procedures, as well as applicable civil laws. Fundamentally, stewardship is about exercising our God-given dominion over His creation, reflecting the image of our Creator, God, and His care, responsibility, maintenance, protection, and beautification of all His creation. The characteristics of a good steward? A good steward is trustworthy. Funny how we come back to this, which is being honest. 1 Corinthians 4.2. Now, the one thing that is asked of a trustee is that he be found trustworthy. A good steward is uh, faithful regardless of the size of the job they've been given. Luke 16.10 says someone who is trustworthy in a small matter is also trustworthy in large ones. And someone who is dishonest in a small matter is also dishonest in large ones. A faithful steward remembers that ultimately we work for God and everything belongs to him. Colossians 3 verse 23. Whatever work you do, put yourself into it as those who are serving not merely other people, but the Lord himself. Next, leaders, as biblical leaders, as leaders, we have to have moral ethics. We affirm sexuality as a gift from God for procreation between a husband and a wife, which is only a man and a woman, no other combinations. There must be stringent adherence to all biblical moral and sexual ethics as defined in Scripture. We're actually getting into an area of of grayness with the current generation that doesn't necessarily uh, adhere to biblical ethics. There's no gray-shaded area in this. There's no part ways. The Bible's the infallible word of God, and it must be obeyed if you're a believer. A man should never counsel, pray, travel, dine, and spend any time alone with a woman who is not his wife. Nor should a woman ever counsel, pray, travel, dine, or spend time alone with a man, unless it's her husband. The word states, let there not be an appearance of sin. Leaders must be pure, holy, and righteous in all that they do. 
There are far too many moral failures occurring in the greater body today that grievously negatively affects the greater body's integrity and reputation. We all suffer from this. There must be moral ethics. 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 9, it says, Don't you know that unrighteous people will have no share in the kingdom of God? Let me say that again. The unrighteous people will have no share in the kingdom of God. He goes on to say, don't delude yourselves. People who engage in sex before marriage, who worship idols, who engage in sex after marriage with someone other than their spouse, who engage in active or passive homosexuality, who steal, who are greedy, who get drunk, who assail people with contemptuous language, who rob, none of them will share in the kingdom of God. This slices right through our society today who seems to have no morals, no ethics, and do whatever they deem right according to their own eye. This is very clear. This is a very powerful scripture. Biblical ethics outline the way we ought to conduct our lives. Ethics are an integral part of biblical revelation. From Genesis to Revelation, we find principles, precepts, commands, mitzvahs, warnings, guidelines, and counsels that are intended to steer our lives toward that which is right, good, and God, that we may honor him and worship him and be in his presence. As the people of God, blessed with the word of God, we must receive and live by God's ethical instructions in full submission and wisdom to the entire word of God. Not cherry-picking scriptures, not just New Testament only. Yeshua said in Matthew 5, we've shared this many times, starting in verse 17, he said, I've not come to do away with one jot or one tittle of the Torah, and anybody who teaches otherwise will be least in the kingdom of heaven. It's the entire book, we live by it. Next, as leaders, we must have proper use of authority. We must use authority responsibly. In Matthew 20, starting at verse 25, but Yeshua called them and said, you know that among the goyim, those who are supposed to rule them become tyrants and their superiors become dictators. Among you, it must not be like that. On the contrary, whoever among you wants to be a leader must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, we've seen this visibly played out in the last several years with this pandemic and this COVID. Leaders have become tyrants, and they've become dictators, and it's getting even worse. You know, Americans think that questioning or defying authority is our inalienable constitutional right. Many resist the concept of authority and submission to it. Many don't like submitting to anyone anywhere at any time. But when it comes to congregations, most American evangelicals do not view it as a place where you submit to leadership for the purpose of growth and accountability, but rather as a store where you shop as a consumer. If you like the place and the services you need, you come back. If another place down the road offers a more pleasant experience or maybe coffee before services, you move your business there. Hebrews 13 verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your lives as people who will have to render an account. It also says in Scripture, for me as a person who is a congregational leader, I'm judged more severely than others because of this very calling, this mandate. It goes on to say, so make it a task of joy for them, not one of groaning, for that is of no advantage to you. We must use our authority, training, relationships, and practices for the benefit of the people we serve. Remember, in the ministry, we're serving people. Leaders in the kingdom must teach God's word and lead with true biblical authority. And the congregate must submit to such authority and be open for correction and reproof. We serve, supervise, and strive to structure these relationships in mutually respective, mutually empowering, and non-exploitive ways. 
Biblical, ethical, and responsible use of social media. This is a big one because we're, we're immersed in this. Understanding that we live in a world that is highly connected by social media and virtual technology, leaders must maintain appropriate boundaries, behavior, and a biblical worldview in the virtual world as in the physical world. Ephesians 4 verse 29 says, Let no harmful language come from your mouth. Only good words that are helpful in meeting the need words that will benefit those who hear them. So we must adhere to safe biblical practices in our use of digital communication as well as social media and networking sites. And I want to tell you at a personal level, whenever I'm in a conversation with somebody and it's a serious conversation and it may get heated, I stop emailing, I stop texting because over 80% of our communication is done through body language. And so your mind, your spirit will fill in the blanks when you read a text or an email and you can't see that body language and it's generally not to the benefit of the sender. So I'll call that person in. I want to speak face-to-face. I don't want to do it digitally anymore. Stuff that we post, digital communications, is not to be decisive, argumentative, or polarizing in what we post or share. What would Yeshua do? Now, this is opinionated. This is subjective, but this is my opinion. I believe Yeshua would use social media to share the kingdom. All that we should be done is to build the kingdom of God, to encourage and edify, but don't fall into useless arguments and foolish controversies. We must have a standard protocol in dealing with sin or moral failure in leadership. Reconciliation and restoration are always the goal within the ministry anyways, and often in businesses. But depending upon the issue, and and it it varies uh, in in comparison to what the sin is, but depending upon the issue, it may be a six-month stepping down from their position while engaging in counseling and healing to permanent removal or cessation of employment if it's a severe moral failure. But there must be a plan and a process, and there are no shortcuts. Another critical point is clear, transparent communication with staff and the congregation and employees. They don't need to know the whole story, but they do need to know the situation is being handled and resolved, as most likely several of them already know that there's an issue going on behind the scenes. You know, when we do membership classes here at the congregation, uh, we, this doesn't go on for weeks for us. So it's about a four or five hour membership class just to put everything on the table. Here's what they can expect from us. And here's what we expect from them. And we actually do a one sheet uh, agreement page that we all know where we stand. If there's an issue, we're going to talk about it. You'll bring it to be. There's no gossip. We expect them to attend to services and tithe. They can expect from us counseling and benevolence and, and that sort of thing. But it's clear communication of what we expect from them and what they can expect from us. And so in this same vein, you, you, you've got to have something with staff that there's a failure. There's going to be a process, again, to bring about reconciliation and restoration, or if it's severe, it's going to be termination. But it's got to be clearly communicated with the congregation or your staff because probably most of them already know something is going on. So now to move on, we must seek to have the characteristics of godly men and godly women. So godly men have patience. If a godly man does not obtain his desire immediately, he will wait till the mercy is ripe. Psalms 130 verse 6 says, Everything in me waits for the Lord. God works in his season, not ours. The smallest will grow to a thousand. The weakest will become a mighty nation. I, Adonai, when the right time comes, will quickly bring it about. In Isaiah 60 verse 22. Godly men will treat their wives with respect. 1 Peter 3 verse 7 says, You husbands likewise conduct your married lives with understanding. Although your wife may be weaker physically, you should respect her as a fellow heir of the gift of life. If you don't, your prayers will be blocked. Wow. Godly men have patience in trials. 
A godly man will not only do God's will, but takes responsibility. Micah 7 verse 9 says, I will endure Adonai's rage because I sinned against him until he pleads my case and judges in my favor. Then he'll bring me out to the light and I will see his justice, patience, and accountability. Godly men are not discontent, such as a sullen, ungrateful moods. Discontent is the daughter of pride. Hebrews 12 verse 15 says, See to it that no one misses out on God's grace, that no root of bitterness or discontent springing up causes trouble and thus contaminates many. If you're not blossoming where you're at, God won't move you to the next level. Godly men are holy. 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 3 through 8. What God wants is that you be holy, that you keep away from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to manage his sexual impulses in a holy and honorable manner without giving in to lustful desires like the pagans who don't know God. No one should wrong his brother in this manner or take advantage of him because the Lord punishes all who do such things, as we've explained to you before at length. Verse 7, For God did not call us to live an unclean life, but a holy one. Therefore, whoever rejects this teaching is rejecting not a man, but God. Indeed, the one who gives you the Ruach HaKodesh, which is his. And so this has to be the core understanding. This goes back to our ethics and all that we do. We have to manage this as Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians 4, because God wants us holy. Godly men are not prideful. Proverbs 16, 18 said, Pride goes before destruction and arrogance before the fall. He must not be a new believer. He might become puffed up with pride and thus fall under the same judgment as the adversary did in 1 Timothy 3, 6. A godly man subscribes to God's wisdom and submits to his will. He says, Both good is the word of the Lord, but good is the rod of the Lord. Isaiah 39, verse 8. Godly men are filled with integrity. Psalms 101, a psalm of David. I am singing of grace and justice. I am singing to you, Adonai. I will follow the path of integrity. When will you come to me? I will run my life with a sincere heart inside my house. I will not allow before my eyes any shameful thing. For every man that's ever cruised pornography on the internet, Psalms 101, verse 3, I will not allow before my eyes any shameful thing. I hate those who act crookedly. What they do does not attract me. And I'm going to open this up because now we're seeing almost as much a problem among females in pornography as we do among males. Remember, if the Holy Spirit's inside you and lives in you, the Holy Spirit sees everything that you see. So think twice about what you're looking at and what you're bringing in through your eye gates, your ear gates, and what comes back out. Verse 3, I will not allow before my eyes any shameful thing. I hate those who act crookedly. What they do does not attract me. Verse 4, deviousness will depart from me. I will not tolerate evil. Verse 5, if someone slanders another in secret, I will cut him off. Haughty eyes and proud hearts I cannot abide. Verse 6, I look to the faithful of the land so that they can be my companions. Those who live lives of integrity can be servants of mine. No deceitful person can live in my house. No liar can be my advisor. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of Adonai. What a profound verse in passage here. Proverbs 20, verse 7 said, The righteous live a life of integrity. Happy are their children after them. The integrity of a man is based upon what he does when he thinks no one is watching him. Let's move on to godly women. So what are godly women? What are their duties? What is their personal responsibility to the living God? How are they to behave and present themselves? Godly women have godly attire and appearance. Modern women in our society today receive a feeling of power in immolating or copying the appearance of a man. The trend presents itself across the board from the upper-class CEO businesswoman wearing a dress suit as her male counterparts down to the lower-class teenager and the project's donning gang attire. 
A woman is not to wear men's clothing, and a man is not to put on women's clothing, for whoever does these things is detestable to Adonai your God, Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. And modesty in 1 Timothy 2, verses 9 through 10. Likewise, the women, when they pray, should be dressed modestly and sensibly in respectable attire, not with elaborate hairstyles and gold jewelry or pearls or expensive clothes. Verse 10, rather they should adorn themselves with what is appropriate for women who claim to be worshiping God, namely, good deeds. So what's the definition of decent? What is modesty? Listen, I'm not taking a position of Victorian morality, saying that a woman's dress length much approach the floor or cover the ankles, uh, nor will we argue that one inch above or below the knee. At what point is dress determined to be long anyways? How long is a short robe? Now, am I saying that a woman must wear a dress excluding the possibility of wearing pants? No. Many women wear pants in one form or another. It has become popular among the younger women, especially the wearing of blue jeans. The point is, a vivacious woman who is vile and corrupt in her heart will somehow manage to accentuate her sensuality and intentions no matter what she happens to be wearing. It is a question of showing good taste and reverence to the Father in heaven. A woman, therefore, is not to present herself in a way as to distract the eyes of a man wanting to be chased rather than chaste. She is not to in any way draw attention to herself by the garments she is wearing. Godly women submit to their husbands or fathers of single. Colossians 3.18, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as appropriate with the Lord. 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 6, in the same way, wives, submit to your husbands, so that even if some of them do not believe the word of God, they'll be won over by your conduct without your saying anything, as they see your respectfulness and pure behavior. Your beauty should not consist in external, such as fancy hairstyles, gold jewelry, or what you wear. Rather, let it be the inner character of your heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. In God's sight, this is of great value. This is how the holy woman of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves and submit to their husbands. The way Sarah obeyed Avraham, honoring him as her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not succumb to fear. Many women today run their households because the men are not walking in the authority and the leadership God created them to do. And it's not men lording over women. We must remember that men and women are equal partners on this. This is just a chain of command. She's under her husband's covering and he's responsible for her spiritual walk. And I'll tell you a secret with almost 30 years of marriage. If you love your wife in a true biblical manner, she will follow you, gentlemen, to the gates of hell and back. You've got to love them, cover them, protect them, and be their loyal partner. Godly women are prosperous and a blessing. Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31. Who can find a capable wife? Her value is far beyond that of pearls. Her husband trusts her from his heart, and she'll prove a great asset to him. She works to bring him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She produces a supply of wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like those merchant vessels bringing her food from far away. It's still dark when she rises to give food to her household and orders to the young women serving her. She considers a field, then buys it, and from her earnings, she plants a vineyard. She gathers her strength around her and throws herself into her work. She sees that her business affairs go well. Her lamps stay lit at night. She puts her hands to the staff with the flax. Her fingers hold the spinning rod. She reaches out to embrace the poor and open her arms to the needy. When it snows, she has no fear for her household since all of them are doubly clothed. She makes her own quilt. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. Her husband is known at the city gates when he sits with the leaders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She supplies the merchants with sashes. Clothed with strength and dignity, she can laugh at the days to come. When she opens her mouth, she speaks wisely, and her tongue is loving instruction. She watches how things go in her house, not eating the bread of idleness. Her children arise and make her happy. Her husband, too, as he praises her. Many women have done wonderful things, but you surpass them all. Charm can lie, beauty can vanish, but a woman who fears Adonai should be praised. 
give her a share in what she produces, let her work speak her praises at the city gates. So contrary to some religious denominations, scripturally and biblically, there's no problem with women working, bringing in income, buying vineyards, buying fields. This is, there's nothing wrong with that. And this is important as we see the character qualities of a godly woman. Godly women teach the younger women. Titus 2, verses 3 through 6, likewise tell the older women to behave the way people leading a holy life should. They shouldn't be slanders or slaves to excessive drinking. They should teach what is good, thus training the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to take good care of their homes and submit to their husbands. In this way, God's message will not be brought into disgrace. Godly children. Let's move on to the third phase. Godly children honor their parents. It's the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother so that it may... Uh, go well with you in the land which the Lord your God has given you, Exodus twenty twelve. Godly children, are you ready for this? They don't date. Godly children obey their parents. They're humble. They're submissive. They seek the will of God, and they don't date. A famine of the word was written in Amos is leading to disaster among our youth and teenagers. There is no dating. Traditional courtship is a term that's been adopted to describe a biblical model for the relationship leading up to marriage. Courtship is going to marriage, not between 15 and 16-year-olds. This isn't a revamped form of Christian dating. In the Bible, it was courtship, and the parents were always involved in this process that leads to marriage. They did not arrange the marriage without the children's consent, although they were certainly involved in the arrangements. Sometimes the parents found partners for the children, and then the children were consulted for their opinion. Other times, the son would approach the daughter's father and make arrangements with them. And so what's wrong with dating, which is prevalent today? There's many forms of dating, perhaps as many as there are people. Everyone has a different view of what is right and wrong. But there's a glaring fault in many of our models, a double standard. Once we're married, we recognize that certain things are sacred to our partner and to God. Things such as cohabitation, kissing, intimate hugging, sex, and bringing up children. We recognize that not only are our physical body, but our emotions, even our spirit, are dedicated to that one partner for the rest of our life, according to our vows. The dichotomy is this. In dating, we presume to partake of many of these privileges of marriage. We would be shocked if a married man had an emotional attachment to another woman, yet it's quite acceptable for singles to have a different emotional attachment every week. On one hand, we have sex for our partners, but on the other hand, we engage in rampant emotional promiscuity, giving pieces of our hearts away until one wonders what will be left for that special lifelong partners. The problem with dating, it leads to intimacy, but not necessarily to commitment. It tends to skip the friendship stage of a relationship. It often mistakes physical relationship for love. It often isolates a couple from other vital relationships. In many cases, it distracts young adults from their primary responsibility of preparing for the future. It can cause discontentment with God's gift of singleness. It develops a self-centered, feeling-oriented concept of love. It teaches people to break off difficult relationships, conditioning them more for divorce than marriage. This is a primary reason why we have such a high divorce rate today. By the time a person gets married today, they've already been in two to five relationships, and they know well how to break it off when it starts getting difficult, and they quit. The problem with dating, it develops an appetite for variety and change, creating dissatisfaction with marriage. It causes late marriages, leaving more time for falling into sins associated with singleness. It promotes lust and moderate sexual activity, opening the door for fornication. It creates a permanent endorphin bond between two people who will not spend their lives together. It creates a standard of comparison by which mates are first chosen, but after marriage rejected. Lacks the protections and guidance afforded by parental involvement and courtship. It doesn't prepare children to face life's realities. It warps life's realities. Dating devalues sex and marriage. Dating destroys fellowship, leaving believers alienated and ineffective for cooperative ministry. 
Dating embarks on a romantic progression before people are ready to follow through and commit to marriage. Dating encourages short-term relationships over long-term friendships. And what's worse, 1 Corinthians 6.16. Don't you know that a man who joins himself to a prostitute becomes physically one with her? For the Tanakh says the two shall become one flesh. Every time a man and a woman come together sexually, intimately, there's a minute release of blood from both partners. It's a covenant. So if you sleep, gentlemen, with a woman, or ladies, if you sleep with a man, if either one of them have had multiple partners, 20, 30 partners with robbers, with drug addicts, with who knows whom, you become one with all of them. And it opens the door, the portal to hell for all kinds of demonic manifestations. And you see it all throughout our society today. We live in a corrupt, poisonous society. And this is one of the primary reasons why. We must adhere to biblical ethics. We must be pure, upright before God. We must seek to be holy because a holy God requires a holy camp. There must be holiness in all we do, in our workings in ministry and businesses, within the congregation, among congregates, and with staff. Ms. McCaw, I hope this has been a blessing to you. May you walk upright before the Lord and revel in his blessings and his hand upon you. Shalom. Shalom.